Good morning. My name is Gerard Bars. My wife, Debbie, and kids, Megan, Faith, and Mike, have been members of Gateway for the past seven years. And we serve in the life group ministry. Our text today is Revelation 7, 1 through 4. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice, and the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that? We are in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 this morning. And while you're looking for that, I want to tell you a story from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. So in this book, what we see is that there is a bus that goes from hell to heaven every single week. And anyone can go on this bus. And when you arrive at heaven, the bus driver tells them, you can stay as long as you want. You can stay here for all of eternity. Or you can get back on the bus and travel back home. And week after week after week, the story is the same. People arrive from hell at the pearly gates of heaven. They walk off the bus. They experience the radiance of the glory of heaven. And then they walk back onto the bus. And they go back home to the dim, lifeless hell that they call home. And as readers, we're, we're kind of stuck with this question. Why would anyone on earth do that? Why would they intentionally get back on the bus and go back to hell? Hold that thought for just a second. At the end of the story, we witness the sun rising, S-U-N. And upon the rising of the sun, we see that everyone who's in heaven, they look toward it with radiance and with joy and with delight and with hopefulness in their hearts. But the character that we've been following the entire time, as he sees the sun rising, he is filled with dread and he screams with fear. And then he falls down. And suddenly he wakes up and he realizes that he had fallen asleep. Now back to that question. Why would anyone intentionally leave heaven to go back to hell? Why would anyone intentionally leave the light of life and go back to darkness? Why would anyone intentionally leave the goodness of the presence of God and go back to evil? Why would anyone intentionally leave the glory of the face of, face of Jesus to go back to the hellish agonies of a life without God? Well, I hope you see the answer. C.S. Lewis intends to ask you the very same question. We're in the book of Revelation. And what we have seen for the last three weeks is this book painting a picture for us of ultimate reality. So in that sense, the matrix was right. The life that we experience is a dim shadow in comparison to the radiance of the glory of Jesus that we will one day fully experience in full measure when he makes all things new. And so we are in the dim shadow, and this book is revealing to us what reality ultimately is. This is ultimate reality. And what did we see last week? We saw that no one was able to open the scroll. That apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, none can be saved. But really, in its essence, there's one question that every single human being on the planet has always asked, always thought, and it's this. There must be more to life than this. There must be more to life than this. Whether you're a Christian 
or you're not a Christian, these are the questions that we have kind of rumbling up in our hearts. We, th- we say things like, I thought if I married this person, life would be better. I thought if I got that job and I rose in the ranks, life would be better. I thought if I had enough influence, enough power, enough success, enough security, enough peace, enough hope that I would find ultimate fulfillment in life. But I can't open the scroll. No matter what I do, life seems to get worse and not better. It's the Super Bowl today. And as many of you know, Tom Brady has recently retired. And the latest polls indicate that he still has a 50% chance of winning the Super Bowl today. So we'll, we'll see. But here's a really interesting guy, right? Because I shared with you a couple of months ago a, a video of him saying, you know what, I have, I have everything. Here's a man that every woman wants to be with, every man wants to be. He's got $300 million of net worth. He has seven Super Bowl rings. He has everything that money can buy. And by his own admission, here's a man who says, I can't open the scroll. I can't unlock the meaning of life. There's, there's got to be more to life than this. And so, like, let, let this guy be your guide for a second. Let me just ask you, anyone here um, richer than Tom Brady? Anyone here more successful? Anyone here have a more beautiful wife? My hand's raised. Good job. Oh, Ben, you're smart. Oh, good job. Anyone here more influential? Like, take your note from this guy. Here's someone who has everything that the world can offer, and yet he's still empty. And that's, that's the reason why I've shared with you time and time and time again that you are doomed to a life of shallow trivialities outside of the gospel of God. If you run after all the things that this world can give you, that's where your life will be. This book shows us ultimate reality. Everything else is the shadow. Everything else is the dim reflection. So that's what brings us today. The window last week that we saw is the window of the throne room of God. And this week what we see is a window of the four horsemen. And this is a dark, vivid, dreadful scene. And before we we get into that, I want to remind you of something that I shared with you last week. We got to keep this in front of us. This is from Alistair Begg, and he said, the plain thing is the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing. So right on the front end, I want to share with you what the four horsemen are so that we're not wondering, like, okay, what does this mean? Here it is. I put it this way in your note sheet. The four horsemen are a picture of the effects of total depravity. That's kind of a big church word for saying the effect of human sin in the world. That's what it is. And these are the four major players that are at work anytime that you experience or witness or see suffering in the world, pain in the world, war in the world, fighting in the world, sickness and death in the world. Whenever you see that, these are the four horsemen who are at work. And each of these four riders show up to show us that every single aspect of all of human creation is hell-bent toward their own self-destruction. But, at exactly the same time, let's remind ourselves of where we ended last week. Who's unlocking the scroll? Is it you? No, it's King Jesus. He's the one who's unlocking the scroll. So here's the good news, right off the bat. Even as we look at these four riders today, we must remind ourselves of this, that Jesus is still in control. That Jesus is still on his throne. So let's take a look at this. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 1. First two verses. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, this is the only one of the four riders 
that doesn't have unanimous agreement among scholars about what it means. Some people say that this is Jesus. Other scholars say that this is the Antichrist. And still others say it's kind of somewhere in between what's really happening here is that this rider represents for us the spiritual evil in the world, in our own hearts, and in the world around us. And so I just want to rule one out really quickly for us. We can't spend too much time on this, but I think it's important. This is not Jesus. This is not Jesus. And let me give you three reasons why that is the case. Number one, just one verse earlier, all of chapter five has revealed to us that Jesus, at least in this vision at this time, is the lamb who had been slain. The throat has been slit, the blood is running down, and yet he is still victorious. And he's the one who's unlocking the scroll. He is the one who is conquering the effects of the four horsemen. So for that reason alone, this can't be Jesus. Number two, Almost exclusively when Jesus is revealed in Revelation, it's given a lot of attention. And right here, just two verses. That's it. But in the spirit of the plain thing, main thing, typically when John sees Jesus, he really fleshes it out for us so that we can see very clearly that that's the plain main thing. And then number three, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, but in Revelation chapter 19, we see Jesus revealed And he is riding on a white horse, but it's vastly different than this one. Like, for instance, we see that in Revelation 19, Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. And yet, this white horse has a bow. We see in Revelation 19 that Jesus has seven diadems, seven royal crowns upon his head, indicating the number of fulfillment. And yet, here we see he has one little wreath. And we also see that Jesus in Revelation chapter 19, he is the conquering hero. And what do we see here? He's bent on conquest. He is bent on the destruction of the world. And so I think this is the plain main thing. The reason why he looks so similar to Jesus but he's not is because that's exactly the point. He looks like Jesus. He acts like Jesus but he's not. He's a phony. He's a fake. He's someone who is trying to be a counterfeit in order to trick us. So here's the way I put it in your note sheet. The white horse is a counterfeit gospel revealed in our own personal lust for conquest. And this is the great spiritual evil that exists inside every one of us. I think it's amazing that it starts here, because when you think about it, this is actually the depiction of our own sinful nature and how sin entered into the world in the first place. All the way back to the beginning of Genesis, what happens? Here's Adam and Eve, they're walking with God in the cool of the day, and then the serpent comes up to them, and how does he tempt them to take of the fruit? He says, if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Here's the idea, God's keeping you down. God's keeping you down. There's more that you can have. You can usurp God. You can control God. You can get above God. And so in a sense, all of us want to be able to unlock the scroll ourselves. We want to be able to do it ourselves. We want to be able to be the masters of our own domain. But we can't. But inside every single one of our hearts, we want to usurp Jesus on his throne on account of our sinful nature. And so what does this look like, practically speaking? I think outside the church, it looks like this. There are many different paths to salvation. Many different ways that you can get to God. There's Jesus, there's Muhammad, there's Buddhism, there's your own path of peace. The flavor of the month for us, I shared with you last week, the rise of the nuns and the duns. You don't need God. You you can just forget about God entirely and you can just... Be the master of your own domain. And so either way, what we see here is an attempt to usurp God of his glory. We even saw that in the first century context. I I shared with all of you that the reason why Christians were so terribly persecuted and put to death was not because they believed Jesus was God. They were polytheistic. The, The reason why they were persecuted is because they believed Caesar was not And even look for us today. Isn't it similar? 
I know the context is different. I know we're not thrown to the lions. But don't we have a desire, even in our own hearts, to be accepting? To not be so exclusive? Like, my goodness, isn't that the great terrible thing of our day? To be exclusive. So what we need to do is to have, to say there's a wide road that leads to salvation. You can find your own way. Truth is relative. Coexist. That's what matters. It's all the white horse. All of it is the white horse. Now, what does this look like inside the church? I think the most obvious is false teaching, right? What we refer to as heresy. But let's put a little bit more teeth on this for us. I think what it is, is any time we act smarter than this book. I think that's ultimately what the white horse is. Anytime we say, you know what, God, I know what your commands say, but I, I don't think I'm going to follow it. You know what, I, I know that God's commands say this, but I'm going to treat it like advice. I don't think God would really say I think God might have a different opinion if, you know, he were here in the 21st century now. And so we kind of have this take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward this book. So let me, let me just lovingly go on the offensive for a second. I'm increasingly convinced that the greatest danger in your life is not the diminishment of Christian culture in Ottawa. It is not the, the rise of other religions like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. It is not uh, atheism and the rise of the nuns and the duns. The greatest challenge in our life today is this, our take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward this book. That's the greatest issue in our life. More than anything else, that's the white rider and that's the work that he does anytime we seek to diminish the fullness of the life of Jesus Christ. And so that's the white horse. Number two, we see the red horse. Revelation chapter 6, verse 3. Look at this with me. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And so here's what the red horse is. I put it this way in your note sheet. It's the lust for war, which is social evil. And so we see here that the horse is bloody and violent and he seeks to take peace from the earth. And we look to Matthew chapter 24, and, and we see that Jesus has talked about this already. Here's what it says. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Why? Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So here's what we know. Because of our sin nature, the traitor within, all of us are bent toward war. You say, Justin, I'm a lover, not a fighter. You're just a little bit more patient than the rest of us. We're all bent toward war. Do you know how I know? Let me just tell you my track record for a second. I have four children. And of those four, <laughs> that's the whole point. Of the four children, my youngest is three. Do you know what that means? I have survived four two-year-olds. That's, that's all we need to know, right? That, that's kind of enough said. What we can see here on account of our own sin nature, you look at your own kids when they're so small, we say, yes, they are hell-bent towards war. We can see it in our own lives. And it only progressively gets worse. So here's what I want to propose to you. All of us are this way. All of us have the red horse inside of us. And if you have Eugene Peterson's reverse thunder, like I've encouraged you to go and buy, if you don't have it, go get it. And if you have, I want you to reread page 77 this week, what I think is one of the best pages in the whole book. But let me give you a snippet. He says this, war is dressed up in the Sunday best of competition. We're trained from an early age to get what we want, not in competition with others, but in competition against them. I want what my brother has. 
I covet what my sister owns. I envy who my neighbor is. I set out to satisfy myself by whatever means are present to my hand. And as you look at that description, James chapter 4 should be in your mind. Here's what that says. What causes wars? What causes fighting among you? Is it people over there? Is it government? Is it politics? Is it culture? The left? The right? Here's what he says. Is it not the passions that are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. So this is something that's always bubbling up inside our soul. And yes, sometimes it reaches a breaking point and we go out to literal war. But here's the thing that even Peterson says. He says, yes, for a time, it might bubble up. We might go to war. Eventually, peace treaties will be signed. People will go their separate ways. But the Red Rider keeps riding. The Red Rider's always at work trying to create vengeance in our heart trying to make sure that we don't reconcile with our neighbor, that we hold bitterness and resentment toward one another, that we're filled with anger, that we're filled with rage. All of this, all of this is the Red Rider. And I just want to propose to you, I think the Red Rider is trampling all over us right now. All over us. And it breaks my heart. I think this is something that we should expect this with respect to non-Christians. Do you know why? Because if, like we said um, uh, last week, we talked about if, if you want to have a better marriage, get your eyes off your spouse. If you want to be a better parent, get your eyes off your kids. If you want God to heal our land, get your eyes off Ottawa. If you want to have a better contribution in this life, get your life off your business and on to the throne room of God. That's where it should be. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else is a shadow. And when the world acts this way, we should say, yeah, that makes sense because they've placed their hope in something in this world. But we as Christians should know better because we know how the story ends. And so we place our hope only and exclusively in the lamb who was slain. We keep our eyes fixed on the throne room of God. That is the only way that God will heal our land. It is the only way that we will see peace in our world is if we keep our eyes fixed on him. And so that's what I think we need to focus on. The forces of the evil one is at work seeking to cultivate war in your heart. Not in the hearts of others. Like probably theirs too. But there's enough right here. Seeking to cultivate war in your heart. And we live in a culture that have, that have given themselves over to anger and to envy and to rage as though it is normative. In fact, as though it is commendable. Here, here's what I'm kind of seeing right now. We see the angriest people and we tend to prop them up, don't we? Don't we do that? We say, see, there's a man with conviction. There's a woman to stand behind. There's a leader to follow. It's all the red horse. It's all the red horse. And so here, here's what I want to propose to you. Here's what this looks like. Anytime we feel in our own hearts just this burning anger, this burning rage, we might even surprise ourselves like, oh my goodness, why am I reacting this way? Let me tell you. We place our hope in something that can never satisfy our soul. Our foundation isn't on the throne room of God. It's on something else. And then when it disappoints us, we feel the earth shaking under our feet and we start to despair. We start to feel sadness. But we don't want the world to see that we are sad. We become calloused and it turns into anger. That's what happens. It is a sign of our own hope being placed in something other than God. All of it, all of it is the red horse. Number three, the black horse. Revelation 6, verse 5 and 6. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. 
I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. So here's what the black horse is. It's famine, which is our ecological evil. And once again, we see that there's, there's nothing new here. Jesus, once again, in Matthew chapter 24, already revealed this. Which, by the way, I failed to mention this at the beginning. This is another reason why we know that the white horse isn't Jesus. Because Matthew chapter 24 perfectly parallels what we see in, Ma- in Revelation chapter 6. Perfect parallel. So, Matthew 24 verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom... There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, I want you to notice something here that I think just should really break our hearts. It's so ironic, but it should also lead us to despair. And it's what we saw in verse 6. Look at it again. It says, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. What is that? So very clearly, this is a depiction of rationing food during poverty times. That makes sense. But what about the way that it ends, right? Do not damage the oil or the wine. What what is that saying? What's the point? You know what that is? It's a picture revealing to us that the necessities of life are scarce and the luxuries of life are mockingly in abundance. Like, that should just, like, be a total stick to the gut. The luxuries of life are mockingly in abundance. And again, I I love the way Peterson says this. He says this, Who believes that there is famine in our land? Not many, but there is. At certain places on the globe, famine is obvious to all. But the bloated bellies and the spindly limbs that are literal fact for some, are a gruesome parody of the lives of us all. This is a famine of the soul. That's what he's talking about here. You have, you have everything you don't need and nothing of what you desperately need. You, could, you have everything you could ever want, but the necessities of life are gone. No matter what you have, they're, they're gone. So what does this look like? Let me, let me give you a few examples of this. I, I think it's like having a thousand friends on social media and still not being known by one. I think it's having all the gadgets and gizbo, gizmos that money can buy and still feeling relationally empty and not having anyone to share it with. I think it's like having all the sex you could ever want, but still not having any of the covenantal relationship of true, genuine love. I think it's kind of like being in peak physical health, but feeling spiritually and relationally dry. I think it's kind of like having seven Super Bowl rings and still saying, I can't unlock the scroll. I can't find the meaning of life. There's no real community. There's no real depth. And there's no real Christ. You're just a cog in a machine. And so I I just want to humbly propose to you, no wonder we're despairing. No wonder we are the most depressed and medicated generation in human history. No wonder we're so lonely. The black rider has come. And we have, like, the banner over our lives in the U.S. and Canada in the first world is, you have everything you could ever want, but nothing of what you desperately need. And we all feel empty. We, we all feel dry. And this book is trying to show us ultimate reality. Here's the shadow. You can have anything you want. But here's life. 
Here is true, genuine life, and the black horse keeps riding. And then we get to the fourth and final horse, verses 7 and 8. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was the pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so here's the pale horse. It's sickness unto death. And this is the biological evil. And here's the thing. The pale horse is the eventual outcome of us all. No one has bypassed the pale horse. No one has unlocked the secret to defeat death. And we might even say, look at all of our medical and technological advancement. We're beating death. We're not beating death. It's beaten us. 100% success track record. Death still will come to take us all. And so here's what I want you to see. I think this is really important. Each of these four riders is riding today, but all of them want to kind of conceal themselves in a way that's more approachable to you. So let let me just kind of show you this. What's the white horse? The white horse is often disguised, as I've shared with you, as autonomy and as acceptance. Autonomy and acceptance. Many different paths to salvation. Choose the one that you like. You must be accepting of others. That's the white horse. The red horse is often disguised as conviction and maybe even patriotism. Conviction and patriotism. We're we're saying, the reason why I care so much about this is because it's super important. It is vitally important. But it's all the red rider. What about the black horse? It's often disguised by self-promotion and how the hard-working pull up their bootstraps and the poor are lazy slobs. And what about the pale horse? The pale horse is disguised by technology and innovation. And so we look at all of these and we say, man, like we're doing a great job, but they all keep riding. And then after this, we see a few more seals in verses 9 through 17. We're not going to spend a lot of time today on that, not because they're unimportant, but because the first four are all times and all places, and the last two are ones that come in ebbs and flows. So number five is religious persecution, right? And we, we saw in the first century in comparison to now, a very different time. Not to say that there may come a time, two, three, four generations from now, in which our kids will experience intense persecution. We don't know the future, but it is different. It comes in ebbs and in flows. And then the sixth one is catastrophes, real tsunamis, real catastrophes, floods, things that cause the earth to shake and to groan for God to make all things right. And again, these are things that come and go. But what I want you to see is that these four riders are not what we often think. We often see the four riders as either a sign of the end times or as something that we get to label someone else we don't like. It's like, okay, who's the red rider today? Mm, That's China, right? That's the Canadian government. That's the left. That's the right, right? We try to pin these horses or these signs on other people. But really what they are is a depiction of us. That's, what, that's the whole point of this. Who can open the scroll? I can't. You can't. And why is that? Because we have a human condition called sin. Total depravity. And so that's the reason why when I sent out my email this week, I said, you better bring your binoculars and leave them at home. That's why I said, leave your binoculars at home. Bring your mirror Bibles. Because the reason why that's so important is because that's what these two chapters are all about. And that leads... To verses 15 and 17. Take a look at this with me. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, 
Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What a question. Who can stand? So let's, let's review this, right? Let's ask ourselves the same questions. As it goes through the list, it, it starts with kings and governments. Can kings and governments save us? Can the Liberal Party of Canada save us? Can Justin Trudeau save us? What about the NDP? What about the Conservatives? What about the Prime Minister hopeful Conservative, Pierre? Can they save us? Nope. They're crying in a cave. Okay, what about, um, what about those with great influence? What about the rich? Can Jeff Bezos save us? Can Elon Musk? What about our celebrities? Could they save us? Brad Pitt, Angelina, Chris Pratt. He's a Christian, by the way. Maybe he could save us. Nope, he can't save us. What about our military? Just kidding, we're Canadians. But what about, what about the American military? Maybe, maybe they can come in and save us, and then we'll all be free. No, that's just actually, that's, that's the red rider. That's the pale horse. Here's what I want you to see. All of these false hopes, they're all hidden in a cave, and they're crying out to the rocks to put them in a tomb. Rocks, mountains fall down on us so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. All of them are hiding in a cave. So I ask you again, who can stand? Who can stand? Well, the Bible tells us. What we see here, and Gerard read it to us already, we see that the Lord in his great power, he's told the angels to, to hold back the four winds until the covenant family of God can come to his side and be sealed, and then he will deal with all of the evil and the calamity and the suffering of this world. And then we get this picture of the 144,000. That question that has eluded many for many, many years. What is the 144,000? Well, let me tell you. We should know this from last week. Do you remember the 24 thrones around the throne room of God? 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 representing the disciples turned apostles. And then the rainbow over the side. And what does the rainbow, rainbow and the 24 thrones represent? It represents the covenant faithfulness of God toward his people. So, mathematicians, I need your help. What's 12 times 12? Oh, what? What? My goodness, 144? That's so interesting. And then we also see that a thousand is always a number of fulfillment. So it's a number of fulfillment times a number of fulfillment times a number of fulfillment. What does that mean? God's promises are true. And he will bring his people to himself, and you can bring that to the bank. That's the promise. It's not like John is going, one, two, 2,634. Oh, I lost count. Got to start over. That's not what he's doing. He is revealing to us that God's promises are true and that we can bring it to the bank. And because of that, here's how we get to answer the question Who can stand? Let me tell you, you can stand. You can stand. Anyone who is marked by the blood of the Lamb can stand because of the work that he has done for us. Let me read this to you. Revelation nine, uh, 7, verse 9. It says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every generation, every tribe, people in language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And I, I just, I love what Peterson says about this. I think this is just kind of the crescendo of his chapter. He says, these people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil, that's Revelation 6, are set alongside extravagant praise, Revelation 7. 
Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. Oh, how they sing. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed, I love this, as weak and pedantic before such songs. So who can stand? The resounding answer of all of Scripture from, Gen- from uh, Genesis chapter 3, when Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, all the way to the book of Revelation, when Jesus begins to unlock the scroll, is that my people can stand. And not only will they stand, but even before these four riders, conquest, war, famine, and yes, even death, they can sing in their face. They can sing in their face. I saw that again this week as I witnessed Mike lay his mom, Emily, to rest. And even though we all had tears in our eyes, do you know what we did? We sang. We started by singing. In the middle, we sang, and at the end, we sang. Why do we do that as Christians? Why why do we sing? Because we know that death doesn't get the final victory. So we can taunt death, just like the Apostle Paul does. We can say, where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. Thanks be to God that he gives us victory even over death. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. So let me tell you what I know and what I don't know. We could write a book on what I don't know, but just in regards to this. Here's what I don't know. I, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know if tomorrow one of us is going to wake up and we're going to have a pain in our side. We're going to go to the doctor and we're going to find out that we have a tumor or that we have cancer. I don't know if maybe the next generation or two or three or four, we're going to experience religious persecution or if we're just going to keep raging on the internet. I also don't know if uh, one of us will pass away this year in year 2022. I don't know. But here's what I do know. We don't have to be afraid of the future. And you might say, Justin, how can you say that? How, how can you say that we don't have to be afraid of the future? Because I know how the story ends. I know that God is ultimately in control. And that even in the midst of suffering and death, we can sing the praises of God. So very quickly, with the time we have remaining, I want to I give you four tools on how we are going to deal with these four riders. So with respect to the white horse... How are we going to deal with it? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to proclaim salvation by Christ alone. You say, Justin, won't they mistreat us if we do that? Won't they malign us if we do that? Won't they make fun of us if we do that? Maybe. Possibly. But, but here's my encouragement to you. My hope is that they mistreat us because we share the love of Jesus and not because we become condescending self-righteous jerks for Jesus. But that we hold out with open hands the love of Christ Jesus that he has given to us. Number two, how are we going to deal with the red horse? Well, for the red horse, we want to receive the gospel of peace. Like, I have this idea in my mind, what would it be like if every Christian in Canada just held true to this one principle? That we are people of peace that we are fully devoted to peace. And then at home, even when we're fighting with people who we disagree with, we don't harbor bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, but we run toward the source. We don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't run away and hide, but we go toward the source. Have you ever, ever had this before where you kind of um, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything, explode? Just me? Anyone? Like, I've done that. I think many of us have done that. Why, why do we do that? Could it be that what we're really doing is we're just harboring and hiding the very feelings we know we have? And so, as people of the gospel, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run toward the problems. I've shared with you before, that's the reason why churches should always be grimy around the edges. You don't want a perfect church. Do you know why? You'd ruin it. I would too. But here's what we do want. We want to be people who are intentional with regard to the relationships that we have, always seeking peace in everything that we do. 
And then number four, the black horse. Or sorry, uh, black horse number three. We want to fight this horse with radical hospitality and with radical generosity. We want to love our neighbors. We want to always be willing to share with others the possessions that we have, to care for them, whether it be our time, our talent, our treasure, because we know that all of it belongs to God, that we want to be radically generous people. And then fourth and finally, with regard to the pale horse, the pale horse is coming for us all. That, that's what we know in Scripture. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing in its face. We're going to sing in its face. We're going to pray for our sick. We're going to ask God for miraculously inter- to miraculously intervene. But we're going to hold those prayers with open hands, knowing that God is sovereign over all things. But whenever death comes knocking on our door, here's what we're going to do. We are going to trust in the promises of God. Newsflash, the four riders lose. And God is victorious. And because he is victorious, so are you. So are you. I just, I want you to know this deep in your bones, not just in your head intellectually, but that it's going to change your life in such a way that you're going to live this way. You're going to sing this way. You're going to rejoice this way. You're going to live your lives this way. And everything that you do, you are going to sing because God is victorious on his throne. Oh, church, my hope and my prayer for us is that we can embody this doctrine that we know. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite Jason and his uh, praise team to join us on stage. And I just want to spend a little bit of time praying with you. I'm going to leave a little bit of space for you to get right with God and to have a conversation with him with respect to each of these four riders. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to step in to join me in this? What are the ways in which you have allowed the white rider, the red rider, the black rider, the pale rider to rule and to reign into your heart? And what changes do we have to make in our own hearts and in our own lives? So let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, we see that with respect to the white horse, we are so tempted to do exactly what our culture says and to say, wide is the gate that leads to salvation. We want to be accepting. We don't want to ostracize others and we don't want to feel ostracized ourselves. But Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage of our convictions to step in and to share the good news of Jesus with those who do not yet know it. Lord, we repent of the ways that we have allowed the white rider to live and to move in our hearts. Lord, forgive us. Lord, with respect to the Red Rider, we see that in each and every one of our hearts, there is a call to war. That because of our sin nature, the traitor within, We want to rage. We want to fight. We want to act as though other people are the problem. People over there are the problem. Oh, but Lord, we know from your word, you tell us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of Satan and his minions in this dark age. And so we humbly recognize that the people that we often rage against are people who need to be saved, who need your peace the same way that we do. And so we repent of the ways that we have allowed the Red Rider to rule and reign in our hearts. Lord, with respect to the Black Rider, we might look at our lives and say, maybe this is one of the four that we don't have. We have everything that money can buy. And yet, Lord, you know our hearts. Many of us here are weary, lonely, isolated, afraid. We have everything we could ever want and nothing we desperately need. We ask, Lord, that we would be willing to step into community 
to know and to be known. We ask as a church that we could step in and we could fill that void, the void in our own hearts and the hearts of others. So we repent of the ways that we have allowed the black rider to rule and to reign in our hearts. Lord, with respect to the pale rider, there's no one in this room who has been unaffected by it. Sickness, dying, death, the loss of a loved one. Oh Lord, it brings tears to our eyes to think of those who've gone before us. But we ask that you would remind us that you have come to unseal the scrolls. That in the end, the four riders lose and you win. And because you win, we can stand. We are victorious through the power of the gospel, through the blood of the Lamb. And so, Lord, now as we sing, oh, may we sing, Lord. May we shout for joy. May we sing your praises because you are victorious and we know how the story ends. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So people of God, let's sing. <laughs>